Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Neil Davis, the CEO of BBDO Dublin. Neil, you're very welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, man. I'm very good. Um, Neil, typical fashion of the show is we typically start out uh, rewinding the clock to the very beginning and then work our way from there. Um, okay. So I know that you grew up. Uh, you're a northern lad. You grew up just outside of Middlesbrough. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that because you went to Stockton Sixth Form College, which on right. the Google Maps is just outside of Middlesbrough. So what was life like growing up uh, just outside of Middlesbrough? Any favorite hobbies, memories from your childhood? Um, I, I, was, I was brought up in a very sporty household in that my dad was a very good uh, cricket player. Um, mm-hmm. And summers seem to seem to center around um that activity we never had summer holidays because because it was all it was all about um cricket and and then my other love at the time was 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 football um or, or Middlesbrough football club who weren't always necessarily regarded as a particularly successful team but as the local the local show in town was a very big part of um of the community really so I I look back at my childhood and it was it was fantastic I was I was very um, lucky to have great parents, um, encouraging parents. They encouraged me to um, to get into to music and into and into sport, which were the two great loves of my life. As well as politics, a very political family. Um, I guess it would be fair to say as well. And and the seventies and the eighties, when I grew up, was a very a very strange time because um, Teesside, the area that I'm from, I'm from Stockton on Tees, which is the other side of the the River Tees to Middlesbrough. That area went through tremendous change during the 70s and 80s um, to the extent that the industry that had created any degree of, of, of either wealth or structure in those communities was beginning to disappear by the 70s and 80s. So, you know, I grew up from a from good working class stock. My mum and dad, um, you know, until I was about four, we lived with my grandparents um, in a council house and and we absolutely loved the life we were having but mm. as you began to grow up you noticed that things were changing that um you know I, I had uncles that, that that didn't really work after their 50s because when the industry went away life changed a lot and as as the as the industries closed down and you know we used to have in the on the the town hall in Stockton in the early 80s there was actually a big plaque which registered the number of unemployed in the town and wow. you just got a sense that things were things were changing and there was very much a sense of a north-south divide. The miners strike came along in the early 80s, which was quite formative for me from a, um, my political aspect on things. Um, whereas Stockton wasn't a, a mining community, the next kind of towns along was right on the edge of the coalfield. So there was a lot of upheaval <clears throat> um, during that time and a lot of things that kind of make you the person you are, I think. There's there's two things I want to touch on there. The first being um, influence. Um, you, you've you've spent many you know almost two decades stateside. You've you've lived in London. You're now in Dublin. Um, I'm sure you've travelled a lot. When you look back to your time growing up, 
people can usually pinpoint a, a close friend, a family member, a relative, a teacher who had a massive impact and not just necessarily one, there could be a handful of them who had a massive impact on them in the early days that helped them become the person they are today. Does anyone spring to mind for you? It's actually a collection of people, I think. Um, my mom and dad were very young when I was born, but, you know, they were still in their teens, which is why, you know, we lived with my grandparents. And yeah. I think being brought up in a, in a house full of adults made me the, the, the talker I am, really, I think. I, I think I kind of developed quicker that way as a result. Um, but my both sets of grandparents offered very, very different things as well. Um, the grandparents with whom we lived, my grandfather was a, you know, an old school steel worker, um, uh, uh, worked hard, but, but, but played hard as well. A very fair man, but, you know, very, um, very clear lines about what's right and wrong in life. You know, he would always wear a tie every day. If he wasn't going to work, he would dress up immaculately and, you know, and always give his all. My other grandfather was also a steel worker, but was um, the comedian in the family and the raconteur and uh, the man who was always looking for a funny story and a funny angle on things. And, and actually, in some ways, I think I'm a combination of those, those two guys in particular. Um, but my mum and dad, I'm still very, very close to um i'm very proud of them they've i'm delighted to say that they're very very proud of me um but awesome. you know e even even things like music you know my mum gave me my kind of beatles and dylan aspect on life and my dad gave me the the kinks the who and the stones so it's there's kind of a a combination of those two things as well the the softer and the harder edges on both sides politics was the other one you mentioned you come from a political family um I don't know what part of your family, but you studied politics and history uh, in at uni down in Hull. So was that because there was members of your family that were political and that gave you the interest in it and you chose that? Or talk me through why you decided to study politics and history. My, my family were a, a Labour Party family. There was there was no question of that. And, and you know, this is when the term that is now used in back in the UK, the Red Wall, the Red Wall was very, very strong in the Northeast. Um, and I kind of grew up within that environment um, because of the influence of, you know, growing up through the turmoil of the miners' strike um, and seeing the way that the, specifically Margaret Thatcher's policy, policies were affecting the community with which I lived. I mean, as I say, you know, having the town hall being a monument to the number of men who couldn't find work or the number of people who couldn't find work was, was a, a bizarre thing to, to grow up in and that very much meant that you know I didn't go to university to necessarily further my academic interests I wanted to be a, a politician I wanted to be somebody who could change things and I remember having a, a, a an argument with my the principal at the or the vice principal at the at the sixth form college who was furious that I hadn't elected to do English at university um, and that I'd you know decided to follow what seemed to be a more vocational choice of politics and history. Um, uh, and it, it kind of made me who I was up until that point. You never lose that. But at the same time, I, I kind of quickly walked away from politics when I realised the, not just the cutthroat nature of it, um, but the fact that a lot of it didn't, didn't necessarily tally with real world solutions for things. And whereas I'm still, I would still argue I'm a supporter of the, um, the Labour Party, I, 
you know, after some degree of success within the, the, the Labour student movement, walked away from it for a variety of reasons. And actually, when I ran for, for the union presidency, I stood as an independent um, uh, in, in, in that, that I felt that the, the organised politics of that time was, was out of time for what was required. And your it's got career... very philosophical all of a sudden, didn't it? No, oh, no, no. Let's not leave that just yet. Your career started in the advertising industry in 1991. And I want to go there in a moment. But people might be going, where is the, like, build a bridge for me to walk me from this political side of things to getting into advertising. You told this great story. I can't remember where I read it, but it was, a, it was about uh, the moment the light bulb went off, that advertising was something you were interested in. And it was something to do with a uh, you've been given a t-shirt by a friend or some friends of John McCarthy t-shirt and they, they were designed by a London agency and you saw that do you mind spending 30 60 seconds telling that story so we can bridge the gap of your love for advertising yeah sure um so I, I actually I didn't start in advertising in 91 I started I went to Kodak Limited the um back when people used to put film in cameras and what they were one of the biggest brands and companies in the world at that time and I kind of fell into that because I I I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left university because I was expecting a career in politics and it wasn't there. Um, so I ended up joining Kodak um, as a graduate recruit um, because I was interested in photography. It was one of the kind of creative areas that, that fascinated me. And while I was there, so the, John McCarthy was another Hull student. He predated me by a couple of years, but he'd been taken hostage in Beirut in the late 80s and spent a lot of time chained to a radiator with Brian Keenan, an Irish national, if you remember that, um, that story. And um, while I was at university, I became involved with the friends of John McCarthy who were campaigning for the release of, of hostages in Beirut at that time. And we were given t-shirts to attend a, actually a, handing a petition over at Downing Street. Um, and the t-shirts were created by an advertising agency called BBH, Bartle, Bogle and Hegarty. And I remember thinking, God, why is an advertising agency involved with this? And that was always whirring away in the back of my brain. When I joined Kodak and I was in the professional division, I was working with professional photographers who worked in commercial advertising and fashion photography. And I started to join the dots at that stage. And there was a light bulb moment, as in there is a role here to play, which is at the intersection of, of commerce you know, something mm. commercial, something which is, um, um, uh, but also creative. And, and, and that, was the, that was the fascinating thing for me. And that all seemed to come together in advertising. So my career at Kodak was basically six or seven years, just gradually moving towards um, advertising. But it had really been triggered back then with an understanding of communications and how it works and, and thinking about why is this ad agency involved? And it's because they wanted to do something good and wanted to contribute something. And, we're giving their time for free. When you when you think of your time at, at Kodak, those five and a half, six years, and your your second job after being union president, um, that's a that's a that, that that's enough time to take some lessons. So five and a half, six years is enough time to take some lessons. Uh, so the question here is, what are one or two skills, or perhaps a behaviour that you uh, can look back and say you improved on from your time at Kodak, bonding and rapport uh communication perhaps i don't know if you got any management experience that you carry to future roles and, and the reason why i ask uh, this is um i i have typically fallen back sometimes on lessons i've learned from previous roles and when i stand back i go well uh, thank god for that 
experience of that previous venture because it stood the test of time to me here and allowed me to make a decision on X topic. There's a there's a, a line from there's a line from Shakespeare which suits any quote you any point you want to make. You can always find a Shakespeare quote right that backs you up. <laughs> but there's a line in Hamlet which is to thine own self be true, right? And it's actually from the same passage um, which includes you know neither a borrower borrower nor a lender be. It's a whole list of of things about who you are as a person. And there was a, a kind of business situation at Kodak that I was the, the central London sales rep dealing with all of the kind of fashion and advertising photographers. And Kodak was very formal and very conservative. And a lot of the photographers had moved over to Fuji because Fuji was seen as new and different and the colors were a bit more vibrant and the um, uh, they weren't seen as stuffy as Kodak was. And Kodak at that time, you had to wear a navy blue suit and a white shirt and a corporate colored tie, either you know, either red or um, yellow. And I'd be knocking on doors saying, have you tried this film? And it was, we weren't necessarily getting through. And I, I went back to the office and talked to my boss and just said, these lads aren't looking for somebody in a suit and tie coming knocking on the door. They want people who understand the, the role that they're in as as commercial photographers. So I got permission to be the first person to, you know, wear jeans and a leather jacket and just hang out and 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 kind of fit in rather than trying to force your way in. And that was quite an interesting lesson. And I think the, the other weird thing is having spent 30 odd years having to adapt my accent so people understand even a single word that I'm saying. Um, I remember the first time, the first job I had at Kodak was um, on the technical help desk. So people would call in and ask for, you know, th they had a role of 36 exposure, um, um, you know, ISO 800 T-Max black and white film. And they wanted to know what chemicals they should use to develop it and over what period of time. And I would answer the phone and say, in my Durham tones, um, good morning, Kodak. And people would think they got the wrong number. And I realized that I was pronouncing one of the most well-recognized brand names in the world, uh, Kodak, in a way that was unrecognizable, if you say it in a, a Northeastern accent. So I'd always thought about fitting in and adapting. And that was the same when I moved to London. It was the same when I then moved to America. It was different when I went to America, though, because people didn't think you were necessarily a northern oik at this stage thought you were royalty because you had a british accent that was fantastic um and and a little bit you know subsequently um living in ireland you know it's been a long time that i've since i've lived in the, the northeast and this accent's always carried um with me but that there's i think there's a balance there between understanding how you communicate with people and those around you without letting go of who you are at the same time which is the to thine own self be true element i think i like it um, you also spent a further with, with two separate stints, six years at TWBA or TBWA. Yeah. Uh, you had the chance to kind of run many major account teams. Uh, so for this question, I'd like to pull on your management experience. Um, with that in mind, uh, what do you think are some blind spots that you've got to be aware of as you build and manage a team? So pulling from your experience of managing kind of major account teams, Things like not onboarding properly, not hiring, not having a hiring process, not having a common language amongst the team. Uh, things that if aren't out could lead to two to three X revenue growth. Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about advertising 
and and I would assume that this translates to to most industries is that it's a team game, and actually finding balance in teams and being able to understand that not everybody does everything and different people do different things as you would, you know, in a rugby team. Not everybody plays up front. Not everybody um, uh, plays out half. You know, there are specific roles within a team, um, and 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 that affects how you work with a team you've got and also how you um, how you recruit. I think that would make sense uh, quite a lot. The interesting thing about advertising is that um, that teamwork then creates momentum. And um, once you are on a roll, um, that's when you start seeing growth because that, that momentum becomes infectious and becomes the, the currency of exchange with the client that you have whichever particular client it is and then once those clients feel that they're part of that momentum as well then the ability to sell better and greater ideas and uh, things that have more of a cultural impact becomes um uh becomes um becomes more apparent it, it's never a case of saying here's how i don't think you know here's how we're going to get an extra x thousand or whatever it, it, it's about here are the ideas that will allow us to get there and those ideas are based on creating i think that that momentum within a team and i, I got two um two bits of advice mm. when i was um in america probably early 2000s by this stage one was from um my first boss um, or, or the guy, uh, Richard Lewis, who, who was then the global head of the Absolute Account. And actually, such was the cultural impact of that um, uh, creative account in America that there's actually two coffee table books published about it. One is called Absolute Book and the second is called Absolute Sequel, um, which are great books to, to, to flip through and read. And R Richard said three things to me about dealing with other, um, two things uh, to me about dealing with, with um, uh, teams of people. And one is actually the opposite of the fitting inside a little bit, which is he said, sometimes you need to have enemies. And he said, I don't think you've got enough enemies, which I thought was a strange thing to say, but, it, but it's interesting that you can't always, um, you can't always get where you need um, just by fitting in. You need to have, you know, you need to have a couple of other clubs in the golf bag, whether you use them or not, you need to know that they are there. That was one thing. The other thing he said was, he said in a very deeply philosophical way, humans are fundamentally flawed. We're not very good at most things. In fact, we're not really any good at everything, at anything. And most people are, you know, suffering from imposter syndrome, are worried about being found out, are worried about so many different things other than their job. And he said, so if you constantly set a high standard of expectation for those around you, you usually end up over the course of a lifetime or a career particularly disappointed. If you actually set a very low bar of expectation, more, more, than, more often than not, you're happier as a result, which I thought was quite a kind of glasses half empty and half full at the same time approach to life. But I've, I've kind of always hung on to that. And then the third thing was actually said to me by a member of staff, which was I was in the office at about nine o'clock one night and I stood up and said um, to one of the teams, why the hell is everybody still here? Come on, haven't you got homes to go to? And she just said, well, they're still here because you're still here. Nobody will dare leave while you're still here. And I kind of realized that's probably not a great way to, 
to set an example. So, you know, that kind of Wall Street-ish ambition of, um, you know, you got to be there or, 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 or you're nowhere um, was something that stuck with me as well. How can we work better and more efficient during a smaller, you do what you need to do and everybody throws their shoulders to the wheel when you need to do it, but there's no need to, you know, to, to drive people to the bone. So that was a good piece of advice as well, which I actually got from, from one of my team. Very interesting. Um, you're now the CEO, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, BBDO, Dublin. BBDO, yes. The first line on the LinkedIn company page reads, we are 80 people in a tram shed using our imaginations to help brands grow. So rather than me tell the audience what it is that you do, um, you've got the mic. You'll do a much better job, Neil. Um, well, we're, we're an advertising agency. And uh, to give you some background on, um, on the name, we were set up in 1966 at, uh, by the name of Irish International. And the idea behind the title was to say that, yeah, this is a local agency, but we work to kind of global standards, which was quite an interesting take on things. And the company was very successful for a long period of time and sold and became part of the the BBDO network and BBDO, by the way, stands for Batten, Barton, Durston and Osborne, um, which is a probably a 130 year old um, American company. Um, and uh, about 20 odd years ago, became part of the, the BBDO network and changed our name to BBDO Dublin um, about four years ago. And interestingly enough, our our website needs updating because our our take on the work that we do is, is world-class ideas with a local voice um, which actually is true to the Irish international promise if you think about that as well so we create ads we create content we create pieces of communication for brands and businesses that need to find traction with Irish audiences and mm. um, I'm very pleased to say that some of the elements of cultural currency that we've created um, over the course of our history are part and parcel of, and, and part of the fabric of, of Irish life. So some of the great phrases that you would hear um, from, 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 from ads of yore, whether it is, you know, they're keeping my ideas in a filing cabinet, you know, from, from the old um, uh, uh, Donegal Catch uh, ads, that was one of ours. Who's taking the horse to France? The old Kerry Gold spots, you know, they were ours. All of the Barry's TV spots, those beautiful stories about moments of togetherness, which are uniquely Irish around a, a cuppa, whether you're here in Ireland or whether you're, you know, you've been overseas to, you know, to Thailand or the States or South Africa or wherever it happens to be in those little vignettes of life. The Guinness um, Christmas ad, Great um, which is coming up to its, uh, I think maybe it's 18th or 19th consecutive year on air Jeez. this year which is, you know, you, you talk about things like, you know, every year, what's the new John Lewis spot going to be about? Mm. And, and actually Guinness don't have to reinvent themselves every year, that, you know, people set their Christmas calendars by the, the, the first airing of, the, of, of, the, of that Guinness spot, which is just a beautiful, evocative, realistically, if you watch it and you analyze it scene by scene and frame by frame, it's actually a, a postcard it's a christmas greeting from st james's gate to each of the four provinces each of the provinces is represented you know from from belfast city hall all the way down to you know a galway hooker or you know scenes set in cork and that sort of thing it's it's just a beautiful 
evocation of um, of an imagined Christmas in um, in Ireland, and you can understand why that's a welcome part of people's um, uh, Christmas calendar. So historically, we've done some very very famous things. More recently, you know, it's not just about making TV spots anymore. That being able to bring brands to life and create a, an experience for consumers and customers that that can resonate with them in a whole host of different channels is is part and parcel of what we do. And whereas we still work with Barry's and we still work with Guinness, we do brands work with brands which maybe have a slightly different disposition. So even within the Diageo portfolio, the the, um, the sense of generational energy that you would find in in the Rockshaw brand and how that's communicated mm -hmm. is very different. To, you know, it's it's a long way away from that that Guinness spot it's much more of a celebration of a, a different mindset and a different perspective and it's not just about what goes on air it's about how it shows up um, in social channels as well one of the favorite pieces of communication that I think we've ever done with um, with Rockshaw was quite early on we'd had a really successful launch in, in year one but we kind of painted ourselves as a summer brand as a blue sky brand as an outdoors brand and we were going into um, Christmas or, 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 the, or the, the, the winter period. So we thought instead of using social media to interrupt our users' social media habits, how can we be a tool that they engage with and share? And we thought we wanted to be part of conversations rather than interrupting those conversations. So we worked with Giphy uh, and not only did the first Giphy campaign in Ireland, but the first Giphy campaign in Europe, they literally weren't set up to deal with this because everything they'd done commercially had been in the States before. But we kind of bludgeoned through there and we created a series of, of stickers in, uh, in Giphy that could be shared that were part of the, the Christmas season, but that were uniquely Irish, you know, talking mm -hmm. about St. Stephen's Day, talking about pints, you know, woolly sweaters in, in the Rockshaw colours. And if you go on the Giphy website now and search Rockshaw, we're probably up to about 30 million um, uses at the moment, which wow. is phenomenal. But mm. the ability to to tap into a mindset like that without using television is a great thing as well. So we work with um, a lot of interesting brands. Uh, so we still work with a lot of traditional Irish brands like Barry's, um, Flavins. Um, we work with a lot of state and semi-state business. So we work with IDA Island, which is obviously all, all about inward investment into the um, um, into the state. We work with the Road Safety Authority, the RSA. Um, we also work with um, Tourism Northern Ireland. Um, and then in terms of commercial clients, everybody from uh, Diageo to, to Volkswagen, we work with um, Lidl, which is um, uh, a, a great account because it, it's a, 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 again, it's part and parcel of, of everyday Ireland now in a different way. And um, finding new ways to reinforce the fact that they are an unrivaled price proposition is, is part of the fun of working with them. So the new campaign we, we you may have seen on there, which is, you know, you um, doesn't matter what you argue about, you can't argue with the prices, is really kind of a, a fun way of doing that rather than just showing here's another family who saved 200 euro this week, um, which seems to be what a lot of the competition are doing. So there's the great thing about advertising and I guess this is as much personal as it is professional, is that you're not just working with one brand. You get to play and work with and invest your time and creative skills in lots of different um, areas and solve lots of different pro business problems through appropriate 
um, pieces of content. I kind of enjoy it. You probably, I probably came across there. <laughs> no, no, I like it. Two questions left for you, Neil. How important is speed? Dear me. Um, I had a job in the uh, early part of the 2010s um, at the, when I worked at Naked Communications and when I worked subsequently as a consultant for a while, which was about helping both clients and agencies adapt to change and um, basically unwire their existing wiring, wiring diagrams to get away from the kind of muscle memory of how they'd done business for the best part of a hundred years. And the interesting thing is now, I guess then I thought I was solving a problem there and then. And the reality is that the changes in society and the changes in communication that technology um, point that the technology pushes in our direction almost daily, monthly, weekly, or whatever, means that there is no finite point that um, as much as you need to be fast to adapt, um, you have to realize that that actually being flexible and understand what's next is more important than just solving this problem. So you can be very, very fast to a solution, but never rest on the laurels and assume that you're there because something else is going to come along. So I guess the overall picture is we are in a, a sense of constant change and speed isn't always the right the right answer. There is a, a beautiful quote from Bill Gates, which is, we tend to overestimate the amount of change that will happen in a year, but underestimate how much actually happens in a decade. So we expect speed to happen really, really fast. So if I look at, so I'm holding up my iPhone here, right? So 10 years ago, I, um, I probably still had an iPhone, but maybe, let, let's say for argument's sake, to, to fit in with Bill Gates' argument, I'd say a decade ago, I was still using a BlackBerry. That's a hell of a change in, in, sure. in, in a decade, right? I would never have imagined this. But last year, this was exactly the same beast. I probably had some slightly different apps on it. So my mm -hmm. expectation of what would change in a year, actually, I've probably managed myself. But in a decade, that's a phenomenal amount. I can't imagine what we'll have in, in 10 years' time. So I guess that was a very long-winded, I know with a question about speed, you were hoping for a quick answer. It was a long-winded long way of saying, it's not about speed, it's about readiness and about being able to be flexible throughout. Final question. If you were the decision maker on adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why? Um, having just sat through my twin 14-year-old girl's um, parent-teacher reviews yesterday. This is very pertinent. The interesting thing is, I think some of the things that are there already aren't celebrated in, in the way that they should be. And it, it's about how kids value the subjects they do. So music and cooking, for example, which are two really, really important things, I think, because they're both creative and they're both expressive. They're both, imp both important, but they're both creative and expressive. But you get the sense that kids really don't take them seriously because they're not expected to. Um, they begrudgingly know they have to do science. They begrudgingly know they have to do Irish. They begrudgingly know they have to do history and they're going to get scored on it. Therefore, Jesus, you got to do it. Blah, 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 blah. But actually, the things that would stick with you forever, obviously speaking from somebody who works in an industry that allows me to 
expressed creatively is um, are there already. So it might not be about adding something to the curriculum. It might be about just putting more of a spotlight on the things that are already there that kids should really be given permission to enjoy a bit more. I like it. I like it a lot. Neil, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I'll leave links to your LinkedIn account if anyone's connected to you and also the company account. I've checked out a couple of the videos uh, that you guys have produced for the likes of Little and, and Guinness as well. Well worth checking out. Um, but for today and for being my guest, thanks. And I wish you continued success in the future. Absolutely. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for your time this morning, sir. Thank you. Beautiful morning. Get a sun in my morning, babe. Nothing